Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. So I appreciate you all coming out this evening. If you please stand, and we'll begin in prayer. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and under the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. Do thou open unto me the gates of repentance, O giver of life. For my soul riseth early in the morning before thine holy temple, bearing the temple of my body all defiled. But as one compassionate, do thou be merciful unto me and cleanse me. For thou alone art rich in mercy. O Lord and Master of my life, do not give unto me the spirit of sloth, vain curiosity, lust for power, and idle talk. But give unto me thy servant a spirit of soberness, humility, patience, and love. Yes, O Lord, grant that I might be aware of mine own sins, and not to condemn my brother. For thou art blessed unto the ages of ages. Amen. May Lent be profitable for all of us and bring us to worship at the holy, glorious third day resurrection of our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Father Joseph. Um, just a, uh, there is an extreme echo. Do you find that to be true? Yes. All right. I'm going to work on the echo, um, but I think you can also hear, can't you? Yes. All right. So the reason there is an echo is because I did the audio system today, <laughs> because uh, the volunteers couldn't be here um, to, uh, to, to do the setup. But those watching online, maybe this is better, it's just as bad. Anyways, um, those watching online can, uh, it should have a perfect audio feed, I hope, because we've made some changes which we're still kind of tweaking, and that's why. So you can blame me, but just put up with it. Okay, please welcome back. Dr. William Marshner. All right. We are going to begin today with the fact that as Arianism declined, it left behind it something of a rear guard, or maybe the better word would be a rump group, heavily centered in Macedonia. And their slogan was, no divine Holy Spirit. If there are going to be two divine persons, that's already too bad, the Father and the Son, but we draw the line at two. <laughs> These were called the Pneumatomachi, which in Greek is spirit fighters. Fighters against the Holy Spirit. To deal with them, a synod was held at Constantinople in the year 381. This synod was later 
accepted by universal consent as an ecumenical council. And what it did, basically, was add to the Nicene Creed that third article, the one about the Holy Spirit, with which you are all familiar. I don't think we need to go over it. There's just one more thing that I would like to say about the work of this council, subsequently known as Constantinople Roman numeral one. They also made some little tweaks in the second article having to do with the sun. In particular, they added the phrase, uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born from the Virgin Mary. Okay? And was made man. And we still have those words in the creed today. Okay? De spiritu, incarnatus est de spiritu sancto, from the Holy Spirit, ex Maria Virgine, from Mary the Virgin, um, et homo factus est. Okay. I don't want you to think that any of that wording is superfluous. I know when I first learned the creed, I thought, gee, they like to say things twice, incarnate and became man. But there was a reason for the addition of the phrase, and was made man. The reason for that addition was a heretic known as Apollonius, or no, Apollinarius, Apollinarius, A-P-O-L-L-I-N-A-R-I-U-S. Apollinarius maintained that uh, our Lord took flesh. Yeah. So he had a human body. But he didn't have a human soul because he didn't need one. Instead of what the soul does in you, understand and so on, the divine word did in him. So his whole interior life, if you will, is simply that of the second divine person, the only thing human about him is the flesh, a body. Okay? Well, that meant he had to deny that Christ really became man. That he took flesh? All right, that much Apollinarius could say. But he couldn't admit that he became a real human being, became man. In order to be a man, you've got to have a body and a soul. Our Lord took both. Without it, you don't have real humanity. And so that addition was made at Constantinople I. And now I'm ready to go on. With the condemnation of the spirit fighters, it was finally clear to even the most wooden-headed that we believed in a trinity. Now, how are we to talk about this trinity? And here, the Greek church, for once, <laughs> had something to envy from the Latin church. Around the year 230 AD, a talented writer named Tertullian had written a very important book called Against Praxis, 
in which he nailed down for the whole Latin-speaking world the standard vocabulary for what, what we're going to say there's one of in God and what we're going to say there are three of. Okay? And here we go. Tertullian settles in God. We're going to say una substantia, one substance. And trace, how about an R in there? Trace, oh gee, personae. Three, no wonder I'm doing this wrong. There's no H in the Latin word for three. <laughs> T-R-E-S, what can be easier than that? One substance and three persons. Now, on the Greek side of the Roman world, there was as yet no such settled, set-in-concrete vocabulary. The work of settling the vocabulary was one of the last contributions of St. Athanasius. He was still Patriarch of Alexandria in the year 360. He's nearing the end of his long, adventurous life. And in 360, he held a synod in Alexandria to settle the Greek usage. What we're going to say is, and this is partly very traditional, we're going to say one, I'll spare you the Greek word for one, one usia. And three, hypostases. Three hypostases. Hypostasis uh, is a word that has a, a long history in Christian usage. It's in the New Testament already. It's in verse 2 of chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews, where it says that our Lord is the express image of the Father's hypostasis. Okay. However, there's no reason to suppose that hypostasis was a technical term already in New Testament times. It was not yet a technical term when the Council of Nicaea met. But now it was to be made one. Hypostasis is a special word that refers to what there are three of in God. Okay. That brought up an important new question. Settled vocabulary, thank you very much. Eh, what does it mean? To explain this vocabulary was a task taken on by an immensely talented and effective bishop named Basil, whose see was at Caesarea in Cappadocia. Don't worry about Caesarea. There are several Caesareas all over the old Mediterranean world. The name sort of means Caesarville. So there are plenty of towns with that name. And there was this one in what's now central Turkey called Cappadocia. And that's where he was the bishop. He was one of the most important leaders of the anti-Aryan party. And by the end of his long, important life work, the Aryans were on the run, retreating utterly. <clears throat> 
But after this settlement of vocabulary at Alexandria, St. Basil took up the question, what do these words mean? Okay. So he gave us a first account of this vocabulary, and here is how it went. He says, by the usia of something, we mean the nature that is common to all members of its kind. Okay? So that which is common to all dogs is canine usia, dog nest, dog essence, substance, whatever. And what is common to all three divine persons is the divine nature, the divine essence, the divine usia. All right? Now, St. <clears throat> Basil was in a happy position. He was not deeply influenced by Platonic philosophy, and so he didn't immediately think, ah, well, that common nature, that usia, is already a concrete being in its own right, like a Platonic form existing on its own. As long as you thought of the common nature as a form that had its own existence above the empirical world, there could be trouble about this. St. Basil didn't have that problem. He said, look, the common nature, yes, it's shared, it's common to all in the species, but it doesn't exist. No, said St. Basil. What exists is the particular of the kind, of the nature of the species. And that's what a hypostasis is. So, how do you get a hypostasis? And the answer is what I call St. Basil's recipe. Okay? Take one common nature and add to it individuating traits. The individuating traits that you would find in an individual of that kind. Common nature plus the individuating traits makes the hypostasis. Clear? Yeah. So, you take the common nature of divineness, add the individuating trait of not being from anybody, but of having no origin at all, and you've got the individual who's God the Father. He's a hypostasis. Take the common divine nature and add to it the trait of being begotten, and you have a second divine hypothesis, the Son. And there was also a distinguishing, individuating trait for the Holy Spirit. Does everybody see how this works? Okay. What's the one for the Holy Spirit? Oh, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> uh, that we learn about him through the Son. It's, um, yeah, St. Basil wasn't altogether happy with it, but it was... It was a start. Now then, I have to turn briefly to another topic. Okay? Around the year, oh, maybe 280 to 320, somewhere in that 
maybe 40-year period, we have documentation of a title coming into widespread use in the church. It was a title for Our Lady. And the title was Theotokos, which means the God-bearer. Okay? I better put a little something up here. Now I left the R out of three. Gosh. Let me see. All right, let's try to finish this up. Three hypotheses, and that is common nature plus individual traits. Now I'm done with that for the moment, and I'm coming to the title Theotokos, T-H-E-O-T-O-K-O-S. Theotokos, which means the one who bore God. It's, it's bear not like carry, but bear like have a child. Okay? The God-bearer. That had come into common usage and was uh, accepted everywhere without controversy. After all, she bore Jesus. Jesus was God, so she bore God. What's the matter? Okay. There was a chap named Theodore of Mopsuestia. Mopsuestia. M-O-P-S-U. E-S-T-I-A, small town in Syria somewhere. And he had his doubts about the title God-bearer. Okay? His works have not all come down to us. Uh, There was something of a purge of his works after a while. But we have some fragments left from Theodore. And I'm going to read you two of them. And the first one, I don't think, is going to sound too bad to you. But the second one, I think, will be a shocker. Here is the first quotation from those fragments. When people ask us if Mary is a man-bearer or a god-bearer, anthropotokos or theotokos, if she's a man-bearer or a god-bearer, we should say she's both. Okay. She is a man-bearer according to nature. Since it was a man who was in her womb and came out. Dot, dot, dot. She's a god-bearer because God was present in the man whom she bore according to a disposition of his will. Mm-hmm. 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 Doesn't sound too bad, does it? No. Oh. You're suspicious. All right. God was present in the man whom she bore. Well, I'm not going to deny that. He was there according to a disposition of his will. Oh, okay. He willed to become incarnate. Sounds all right. But now I go on to the other quotation from Dear Theodore. Quote, It is folly to say that the word consubstantial with the Father 
was born of the Virgin Mary. Oops. That's folly. He goes on. For the one born of the virgin is the one formed of her substance, not the word who is God. The eternal word of the Father has no mother. Okay. Well, to put these two fragments together, what you have to do is use the second one, which is more radical, more disturbing, and use it to interpret the first one. What he's really saying is this. She bore a human being according to nature. Yeah. Because what was born of her and was in her womb was a human being. That's. But you can only call her God-bearer because God was present in the man whom she bore by a disposition of his will. Now suppose that means that God was not indissolubly somehow united to Jesus, but had just decided to um, live in him like a temple. And this becomes a standard explanation in certain parts of the Christian East. God was in Christ as he is in his temple. The human nature was God's dwelling place. Yes? Well, even the temple in Jerusalem is not by its very nature God's dwelling place. And he wouldn't have had to choose to live there. But he did. So he's there by choice. So he's there by a disposition of his will. In short, you got a divine eh, hypostasis inside a human being. Okay? Not exactly united to it, but inside it. Thus far Theodore of Mopsuestia. Now, the controversy started by Theodore's remarks and sparked by similar remarks elsewhere came into the city of Constantinople in a deplorable form. Constantinople, like any large city, had street gangs, <coughs> gangs of roving adolescents who would make trouble of various sorts, the only thing funny was that in this fourth century in Byzantium, <laughs> they rumbled over what to call the Blessed Virgin. There was the man-bearer gang and there was the God-bearer gang. Usually they were called the blues and the greens. CF, the Crips and the Bloods. But anyway, they were battling and the patriarch at that time in Constantinople thought he should pacify the two sides. Very nice. So he put it this way. Remember, can't remember, I haven't told you yet. Nestorius had been a pupil of Theodore. So he says, look, guys, cal calm it down. 
Here's the deal. She didn't exactly bear God, but God was in the one whom she bore. Okay. So let's just make peace and call her Christotokos. Not man-bearer, not God, Christ-bearer. Christotokos. Okay. Now, the terms on which Patriarch Nestorius tried to make peace in Constantinople uh, were soon known throughout the Roman world and uh, known already to uh, St. Cyril of Alexandria. Cyril was at this point Patriarch of Alexandria. Cyril finds out what Nestorius has proposed as a settlement, and he says, no, no, no. You're dividing Christ in two. You've got a man part and a God part. The one is inside the other. You're dividing him in two. And uh, Nestorius replies, uh, well, see, it's complicated. If, if you're talking about hypostasis, yes, there is the divine hypostasis, that's the Son, and there's a human hypostasis in whom he dwells by his will. And yet, I'm not denying that there is one Christ. Okay? Because he is one prosopon. Oops. What's that? Now we have another technical term here, or it would become a technical term. All right, I've got usia, I've got hypostasis, plural S-E-S. I don't have prosopon on the board. That was another Greek word. And it didn't exactly mean a person, okay? Tertullian was able to pick up a Latin word that really did mean person because he was a lawyer. Okay? Person was originally a legal term. If your rights are protected, you're a person in the law. The Greeks didn't have a legal term like that. But they did have a term of art from the theater. Okay? If you enact a character in the play you put on the person of that character. And that's what prosopon meant. Literally, it was the mask that you wore uh, to play a character. Remember, there was no um, audio enhancement equipment in ancient theaters. You had to talk loud to be heard in the back rows, and this mask, big wooden mask, would echo inside make a kind of megaphone for you, very handy, and could let people all over the audience see who you were. There was the Hector mask and the Paris mask and the Helen of Troy, whatever. So, prosopon, I'm going to write it now, pro-so-pon. Prosopon went from meaning literally a mask, something that goes over the face, 
to meaning a role, a character you're playing or a role that you're playing. So, what Nestorius was saying was this. Yeah, in terms of hypostases, yeah, yeah, we got a human one here, we got a divine one. And uh, what makes them one is the fact that both are playing the same role. God and man so cooperate in Jesus Christ that everything they do is the act or work of both. Okay? Now then, uh, needless to say, um, St. Cyril of Alexandria was not satisfied with, ex with this explanation. And I think you can see what's the matter with it. By imagining a role in a drama that can only be played by two people at once. Okay? So, for example, imagine that your elementary school is putting on the comedy play of the wonderful Mr. Ed. Mr. Ed the talking horse. Okay. One kid cannot fill out both ends of the horse costume. <laughs> we need one kid at each end. So you've got two actors playing the same role. So Christ is the name of a role. It, it needs a divine actor and a human actor. They work together, they play the role. Does everybody see? Well, <clears throat> St. Cyril was displeased, to say the least. He uh, thundered up and down the east, and of course thundered in Rome, and Rome agreed with St. Cyril, and a council was called in the city of Ephesus. The council took place in the year 431 A.D. At this council, Nestorius was condemned, his theory was rejected, he was sacked from his patriarchate, <coughs> and the council put forward a definitional type statement that said, we do not say that the word's nature became flesh through a change in itself, as though the divine nature turned into flesh and blood. No, we don't say that. We also do not say that the word was turned into a human being composed of body and soul. That's the error I denounced in here before under the term frog prince Christology. Okay. Rather, we say that the word, quote, became man, unquote, in an inexpressible and incomprehensible way, uniting to himself according to hypostasis, flesh animated by a rational soul. And he existed as a son of man, not by mere will, nor by just taking on a role. The two natures remain diverse, yet by coming together into a real union, they yield for us one Christ and one son. In other words, the idea that God and man come together in Christ 
by a cooperation, a voluntarily chosen cooperation, will not do. That is too weak. Some people call that a moral union. It's like an agreement based on the will. No, our Lord came into the flesh as one being. All right? He's one hypostasis. Eh? But he takes unto himself the human nature that remains distinct from his nature. He takes to himself flesh animated by a rational soul. This taking to himself is not just an act of the will. He somehow takes the, the human party into his hypostasis so that a union is reached on the level of hypostasis. Okay. I think maybe you feel that you're missing something here. That maybe it's not clear how the Council of Ephesus can have been right. Look. Hypostasis is saint, uh, I'm sorry, is common nature plus individuating traits. All right? Now, as long as we apply that definition to the Trinity, everything is hunky-dory. But trouble comes when we try it to the talk of a hypostasis in Christ. Looky here. On one side, we've got the divine nature with the individuating trait of being begotten, that gives us the hypothesis who is God the Son. Good. But at the same time, we have a human nature taken up. And it's not abstract. Doesn't it? In other words, our Lord had fingerprints. A distinct eye color. Okay. So he too has a common nature, same as ours, the human nature. Plus his individuating traits. So, doesn't that mean there's a human hypostasis in Christ? Oops. That's what Nestorius was saying. Something's wrong here. And now you can debate in your own mind what to do to fix things. Okay. You can go back and look at what we say traditionally about our Lord's humanity and wonder if it's complete. If he doesn't have complete human nature, he won't be a human hypothesis. The other thing you can do is try to revise your definition of hypothesis. Well, that could be tricky. Because this is an awfully abstract term. So much more popular was the idea of saying, look, there's only one hypothesis in Christ, the divine one, because his human nature was incomplete. It had a hole in it. The most obvious way to put a hole in Christ's human nature is to get rid of his rational soul. Oops, Apollinarius tried that. That won't work. 
You want to try a smaller hole? You want to just get rid of his will? <coughs> Various attempts were made at one time or another, all rejected. So it turned out there was nothing to do but eventually correct the original definition of hypostasis. Yes. Because, clearly, something has been left out. If the well-individuated divine nature in our Lord counts as an hypostasis, but the well-individuated human nature in our Lord does not count as a hypostasis, then there has to be something more to being a hypostasis than common nature plus individuating traits. Are you with me? Yes. Yeah. All right. Twenty years go by uh, before there's another council, but it didn't take 20 years for trouble to start. Practically the day after the Council of Ephesus was finished. There were people around who were dissatisfied with the condemnation of Nestorius and certain well-known buddies of his. They thought there should be more condemnations, wider condemnations. And the foremost of these fire eaters who wanted the last Nestorian rooted out was a monk in Constantinople called Eutyches. E-U-T-Y-C-H-E-S. His name means good luck. <laughs> the monk, the holy monk, good luck. Well, <clears throat> Eutyches was um, seconded by a new patriarch in, in uh, Alexandria. After St. Cyril died, that huge, important patriarchal see went to a man named Dioscorus. D-I-O-S-C-U-R-O-S. Dioscorus. Dioscorus was a fighter. Dioscorus had no patience. Dioscorus Dioscorus was a bit of a bully. Whatever his vices, he agreed with the monk Eutyches that there ought to be another council to finish the job started at Ephesus. Okay. Moreover, when Eutyches and Dioscorus were questioned about what they thought needed fixing, it came down to this. We admit that our Lord comes to be from two natures, from the divine nature, from the human nature. He's from two natures, yes. But we refuse to say that he's in two natures. If he's in two natures, and individuated in both, he's got two hypostases, that's Nestorianism, we can't have that. Oh dear. So we can't say in two natures. Dioscorus, 
using the wealth and power of the Sea of Alexandria, uh, took it upon himself to call another council in Ephesus, where he uh, denounced bishops from all over the East who wanted to say Christ had two natures. He just didn't, he didn't just come from two natures. He had two natures. He's in two natures. What's the matter with that? No, 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 said Dioscorus and his um, friends. And they arranged this council at Ephesus in which there was a considerable amount of violence used against dissenters so that this council came to be known as the Robber Council of Ephesus or the Brigandage of Ephesus. All right. In the end of the day, something wonderful happened. The Byzantine emperor, who was largely propping up Eutyches and allying a great deal with the Alexandrian patriarch, was Theodosius II, and would you believe just in time, he fell off his horse <laughs> and died. That brought his sister Pulcheria to the throne. And Pulcheria had a boyfriend whom she married and made, he, he became empress. He, beca he became emperor, she was empress. And the two of them together had no use for Eutyches and his ranting and raving. They were happy to be instructed by Rome. At this very moment, the Roman see was in the happy position of having as its occupant Saint Leo the Great. Right? Saint Leo wrote this, well, two works really called A Tome of Leo. Tome number one and tome number two. And those two tomes were the basis on which the matter would be settled at a new council. Polcaria and her husband set up a new council to meet at... Ah, it's not here. Should be around here somewhere. In a town called Chalcedon, which nobody says. The K went into Latin as a soft C, and so it's Chalcedon, or Chalcedon, or whatever you hear it called on the radio these days. <laughs> Chalcedon, 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 anyway, C-H-A-L-C-E-D-O-N. And I have for you, in brief form, the definition from the council. Quote, in line with the fathers, we confess one Lord Jesus Christ, perfect, complete in divinity, complete in humanity, consubstantial with the Father according to his divinity, consubstantial with us according to his humanity, being like us in all things save sin. Dot, dot, dot. We confess one and the same Christ. He is to be acknowledged in two natures. In two natures. 
without confusion, without change, without division. In other words, now confusion is another fancy word for mixture. The two natures are together in Christ without mixture, without change, without division. And they concur in one person and hypothesis. Hypothesis. The two natures in which our Lord is acknowledged concur in one person and hypostasis. Okay, there it is. That is the verdict of orthodoxy. And this was the profession of faith at Chalcedon. And as far as orthodoxy is concerned, it's letter perfect. All Chalcedon has done is reaffirm the facts of the faith. Okay? It is a fact that our Lord is complete man, full man, perfect man, like us in everything but sin. It is a fact that he is the fully divine son of God. He is both. That's what we're saying. He's in two natures, but he is one person. Huh? One hypostasis. All right? Chalcedon was a magnificent achievement because it was an act of Christian heroism. There was no new and improved account of what a hypostasis is. We're going to insist, in line with tradition, there's only one concrete individual being in Christ. It's the divine person, but both natures are there. Both natures, if you will, are individuated, but that does not produce a second hypothesis. Hypostasis. Okay? So St. Basil's definition was incomplete. We now know that a hypothesis is the common nature plus individuating traits plus X. The X factor. What had St. Basil's definition left out? Oh, boy. Now, according to my watch, I have five minutes to tell you. Oh, no. One. Well, I'll do the best I can. Let's start out this way. You say, O oh Basil and other uh, fathers, that the hypothesis is the concrete individual, okay? Like Fido, rather than caninity. It's the concrete individual. How does the concrete individual relate to his nature? Well, in ordinary language, we would say, he has it. Okay? I am not human nature. I have it. I am a concrete individual. I have human nature. Ditto for you. This podium, if it can be said to have a nature at all, has podium nature. It is not itself podium nature. 
as though it were a platonic form somehow fallen down among us. It has that nature. It's a particular, an individual having that nature. All right? Now, I want you to take that clue from common, ordinary language and think through what this missing X factor can be. Okay? And to help you get to the idea of this clue, I'm going to try once again an experiment. I've tried this before. Unfortunately, tonight I do not have on me a hundred dollar bill. <laughs> they don't get paid enough. All right. Here's a five. Will that do for you? All right. Wait a minute. I'm not going to put that in my pocket. That's not good enough. I am going to follow a certain well-known recipe for thinking up a hypothesis. I'm going to ask you to join me in this effort. I want you to think of the nature of a U.S. $100 bill. Okay? In general, what that is, what its nature is, part of our currency and so on. And now I want you to start thinking up individuating traits. I want you to imagine a serial number for this $100 bill. I want you to imagine a wrinkle in the top left-hand corner. I want you to imagine a scuff. How about a little drop of ink somewhere? Think up all the details you want. We could probably confer on the details and put up together a joint list. All the details you can think of, all the details I can think of, we're going to individuate this thing to a fairly well. And I'm going to put my hand in my pocket and it's still empty. Okay? The point I'm trying to illustrate is a point which has been lost on many philosophers many centuries. You cannot get to a concrete individual by adding details to its general description. Take its generic description according to its kind, add as many details as you want, you will never get out of the realm of specification that way. You will never get into the realm of, oh dear, exercised being. Let me try putting that in a handier way. You're never going to get to a concrete reality by adding on more details. Now, we've just looked at some uh, ordinary language that suggests to us that what's needed, it, the X factor, is having what it takes to have a nature of subsistent thing, a hypostasis, is a haver. Its nature is what it has. A hypostasis, in addition to having the common nature and individual traits, have to ha has to have what it takes to have a nature. Okay? Now, 
I will oversimplify things indecently if I give you the answer you want to hear. All right? You want to hear, well, it's got to exist. The trouble with a $100 bill in my right-hand pocket is that it doesn't exist. It's got details out the gazoo, but it doesn't exist. Close. That's not technically correct, but it's close enough. You get the point. In order to exist, you must be capable of having a nature. A concrete individual is what can have a nature. A thing that can have a nature also can exist. And fortunately, in many cases, does exist. All right? So the relation of a hypothesis to the common nature, which, it's, uh, which is its usia, is the relation of having it. Okay, now, this did not matter in St. Basil's day when he was working on his account of the Holy Trinity. Didn't matter at all. Because the divine nature has itself, so to speak, or it necessarily has the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as his instances. We say that the divine nature is self-subsistent. Subsistence and hypostatization and all that good stuff are automatic in God. But, I have a created nature. How about you? A created nature does not necessarily have a haver. The divine nature from all eternity has three havers and has to have them. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. My nature doesn't have to have any havers at all. I happen to be around, but that can be remedied. My enemies may get to me. In fact, nothing guarantees the continued existence of the whole human race. We can be wiped out without metaphysical insult <laughs> to... <laughs> to the laws of logic or anything. It'd be a biological problem, but not a metaphysical. Look, I want you to think of dodo nature. Mm -hmm. All dodos had a common nature, right? And now, oh, and, and they used to have havers. There used to be havers of that nature. Then a funny thing. The Portuguese landed on the only island where they lived hunted them like the dumb turkeys they were, and pretty soon there were no more havers of dodo nature. Dodo nature no longer has anything in which to subsist. Nothing subsists in dodo nature anymore. Likewise, the hapless trilobite. Uh-huh. I remember in the sea, in the Cambrian era, which was a long time ago. But I like old-fashioned things. I was hoping a trilobite might still turn up somewhere. Apparently not. Another species that no longer has any havers, a nature that isn't had by anything anymore. Bye-bye trilobites. Oh, that wonderful deer that used to exist in Ireland and its antlers were so big it couldn't drink water without collapsing into the mud. 
Yes. Stone Age. Eh. Animal. The saber-toothed tiger, wouldn't he be fun? Nothing has that nature anymore. What subsists is what has a nature. Yes. Well, our Lord has two natures, one divine. Good. That nature has to have a haver. Okay, he's got it. But his human nature doesn't have to have a haver. No. In other words, it's a created nature. It does not automatically, of itself, as, as a nature, have a haver of it. Okay? So our Lord took his own status as the haver of a nature and gave it to his human nature. Okay? Now, I want you to notice something. I know, I'm over time. He's going to scream at me back there if I don't finish this. Look, um, did we agree a moment or so ago that the trilobite was extinct? Yeah. The dodo, likewise, extinct. Do you see what I mean if I say that having havers was not part of that nature? It could still be dodo nature and yet be extinct. Does that make sense? Dodo nature doesn't have to have havers who exist. Not in itself. It can become the nature of an extinct species. Right? All right? It's the same with human nature. Yes. Our nature does not, by itself, guarantee that there's a haver. Our nature, without change, in and of itself, in what it is, could simply become the nature of an extinct species. Does everybody see? Yeah. So human nature does not supply its own haver. Okay? Now you might say, well, yo, well, you've got your nature, you've got your nature, Master, you must... Of, of be a hypothesis. I am, yeah, I, I confess. I'm a hypothesis. We're all hypotheses here tonight. <laughs> hypothesis. I have my nature, yes. But alas, I'm just a human being. My hypothesis is just a human hypothesis. My nature is had by a human haver. That's why there's nothing about me that deserves worship. But our Lord is different. In him, the divine haver has the human nature as well as the divine nature. All right? And as a result, every fiber of our Lord's being belongs to a divine person. Okay? And on top of that, the one Christ exists with the divine being. And that's why you're not to be blamed if you were to kiss our Lord's feet. They're the feet of God.
They exist with the divine being. There's nothing wrong with you if you adore the sacred heart. Although it's his human heart, it exists with the being of God. Okay? And so it is adorable. Everything in our Lord is adorable down to his toenails. And that is the splendor of our doctrine of the Incarnation. And that's all I have to say to you tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Marshner, for another uh, very entertaining uh, presentation. Is this still echoing? Do you see that? We fixed it. We fixed it. Isn't that great? Um, we'll take a short break, uh, two to three minutes, and, uh, and then come back together. Thank you for coming tonight. Dr. Marshner, yes. given that you had a class canceled, which point would you like to expound upon that you did not have the opportunity to do? Well, I tell, <laughs> I tell you what happened. Um, I reviewed, oh, it's working. I reviewed the last time I gave this series of lectures back in 2007, and it, it was in four, nay, five parts, and I found so many tangents and so much fat in there that I was able to cut it out down to three without losing a whole lot. Uh, if I had thrown in some of that extra material this time, I would have attacked Gnosticism and talked about the origins of Orthodox uh, devotion to Our Lady. Uh, Dr. Marshner, um, at Chalcedon, uh, there were some churches that didn't fully accept it. Can you get into that a little more? Uh, what exactly happened there? Oh, uh, well, um, I told you the patriarch Dioscorus was a violent man. He wouldn't take the counsel of Chalcedon lying down. He insisted that the, um, he was right, and he whipped up enthusiasm in the, in the patriarchate of Alexandria. As a result, the Alexandrians never did accept the council of Chalcedon. Um, they went into schism there at that time. Oh, the emperors tried to introduce orthodox bishops into Alexandria. Street mobs, assassinations, not a good assignment. So, uh, and then there was uh, a final attempt made to bring the Alexandrians into line, that was made by the Emperor Heraclius, who's uh, sort of a hero of mine because he defeated the Persians. Wonderful job. However, when he was facing this big war with the Persians, he wanted peace at home, and he thought, let's patch up this mess in the church. Let's have unity here. So he says, okay, let, yeah. Uh, and he, he, he gets a very, very, very clever patriarch installed in Constantinople called Sergius. And uh, Sergius is fine-tuning things. And the idea is this. We're going to say that uh, uh, eh, Christ at least did not have a human will. 
Because he wouldn't resist God's will. Well, he didn't have anything to resist it with. You see, he didn't have a human will. Now, that's a little hole, not like the giant cannon hole that Apollinarius drew, but it's a little hole. And, um, of course, it was unacceptable. And that was the last time uh, the Orthodox tried to make uh, some sort of peace with the monophysites. That's what the Egyptian church is to this day, the Copts. And uh, because of their geographical position, they had spread their position down the Nile uh, to the Ethiopian church, which is also monophysite. And didn't they get into Armenia? I think Armenia, yes. Yes. So that's a couple of them anyway. Dr. Marshner, we have a question coming in online from Bob Clancy, who could not be with us today because he's traveling, and he asks, since, well, I'm going to edit his question, but since Christ assumed our human nature, isn't it now uh, true that, uh, that human nature uh, will always have a haver and therefore necessarily exists? Oh. <laughs> human nature will always have a divine haver. That's now true. But it might not, but, (laughs) and it will always have human havers too because we believe in the promise of eternal life. But it might not have any in this world. Right? Okay. Well, I will allow him a second question through me. Go ahead. Which is because he makes the point about the Eucharist and therefore in this world it will always have a haver. Yeah, if there's anybody in this world to celebrate the Eucharist. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> says it in heaven. <laughs> All right. Dr. Marchner, uh, could you elaborate a little on the difference between, uh, between the term person and the term hypostasis? I've noticed that on the board you wrote three persons, and then you kind of have an analog below it with uh, three hypostases. Yep. But uh, nevertheless, we get to the text of the Council of Chalcedon, and we get one person and hypostasis. Yep. Uh, Chalcedon did not have the name persona because it's a Latin word. Chalcedon was a council held entirely in Greek. All the debates were in Greek. The Greeks had a choice between prosopon, which can mean mask or stage role or something like that, and hypostasis, which is the the concrete individual of a kind. All right? And Chalcedon, just to be on the safe side, says two natures are present in one hypothesis or prosopon. Okay? So, uh, you know, you, you, can, you, you can use the word prosopon as long as you're not distinguishing it from the actor who plays it. Meanwhile, I was saying that the word person uh, is of Latin derivation, and originally came from the legal sphere. Uh, Tertullian was uh, a Roman lawyer, very mean one, apparently, very bullying sort of lawyer. And, um, you know, in Roman law, I mean, if you had the right to buy a slave or sell a slave, you were a person because that right was protected. Okay? If you are a person whose rights are protected, you're an, if you are an individual whose rights are protected, you are a person. Okay? 
it, you have to get down into the Middle Ages before person becomes a common, ordinary word for a human being. Okay? In fact, even as late as the 13th century, Aquinas knew of people who didn't want to call characters like you and me persons because we didn't have any special dignity. The Archimandrite Joseph, however, could be a person because of his Archimandritical dignity. All right? Bishops even more. <laughs> so that, that was the development of the language. And uh, eventually it, it became so commonplace that we can't anymore think of a human being without thinking that's a person. And we were all brought up short, of course, by the Roe versus Wade decision when um, uh, we suddenly ran into a lawyer or two who would not extend the word person to an entity that we, re we recognize as fully human. So it's just two separate languages, two separate semantic histories. All right. Thank you very much, Dr. Marshall. Thank you. Thank you for coming this evening. Enjoy the ride home. Be careful. God bless you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.